Hey everyone, it's Caleb. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of the podcast. I'm super excited to be with you today and that you're deciding to spend a few minutes of your time here with me today. I have a great episode for you today. My guest is Mike Maharg, and uh, you may know him as Science Mike. And Mike is a public educator trusted by millions to use empathy and deep scientific insights to help them navigate some of the most difficult parts of the human experience. He's the host of the Ask Science Mike podcast. He's also um, a best-selling author. He's written a book called Finding God in the Waves. And today we're going to talk with him about, or actually I'm going to talk with him about uh, his latest book, which just came out called You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass. And we're going to talk with him about that along with just a lot of other stuff as well. It's a really great conversation. I'm looking forward to bringing that to you as well. But before we get into that, I want to remind you that the music that you're listening to is brought to you by my good friend, Sam Massey. If you have any audio or video needs, he is the person to talk with for any of that stuff. And you can hit him up on on any of his social media uh, platform channels and see if he would be interested in working with you. Anyway, as I mentioned, today I'm talking with Science Mike, otherwise known as Mike Maharg. And here is our conversation. Well, Mike, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Gosh, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And just as we're getting started, I just wanted to ask, like, what has it been like launching a book in the middle of like a global pandemic? It hasn't been great. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, You know, uh, books depend so much on a pre-order cycle to be Mm -hmm. successful. And... uh, what I've seen in my case and talking to some of my author friends, people don't do things in advance in a pandemic. Mm-hmm. So people kind of, we saw most of the orders came in like launch day and this week. Mm-hmm. And that means getting books to people is a challenge. So some people just ordered their book this week and they're not going to get it until June. Yeah. Um, and there's not a lot we can do about that. So there's a lot of logistical problems. It's also weird doing all the celebrating online nothing in person that's been a mm-hmm. big um change that's that feels very different than how i would have uh traditionally done a book launch but we've still had a really good time uh i'm doing events almost every night uh launch events from you know april 27th to june 5th and we've done several of them now they've actually been a lot of fun um so you know like everybody we're just figuring out how to live life in a new way while physical distancing. Yeah, I was going to say, can you talk a little bit of kind of how how you've pivoted from your initial strategy of launching the book to kind of what you're doing um, in response to the pandemic? 
Yeah, well, the first thing was going to be a traditional tour. You know, uh, I'm an author and a podcaster, but if you look at, at my business, you would it would say I'm an events person. Most of my income comes from going places and selling tickets. Um, and so when I launch a book, I usually go on tour and we sell the book on the tour. But the main thing is like the tickets and people coming to see me. And we realized like as we were launching the tour, we didn't know if it would happen. Um, and I gave like one announcement of like a tour is coming. And then the next week it was like, okay, we're going to have to figure out something different. And it took a lot of time. Mm -hmm. Uh, and what we've done instead is still trying to be local, still trying to help people build community. Uh, we do these virtual events where, uh, you can buy a copy of the book and you can get, uh, some, you know, I'll send you a postcard. So there's a personal touch. Uh, and then we, we get together in a crowd cast and, and I give a talk like I would in an event. And then I bring people on camera and they ask questions like we do at my events. I'm a weird, um, uh, I'm a weird sort of, I just completely lost my train of thought. Hey, that's okay. Uh, it's pandemic brain. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, so, so, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a weird sort of public speaker in that I don't actually like to speak very much. I like to talk with people. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we've just built these events that same way where I just bring people kind of on camera with me and we just talk and explore feelings and explore the science behind behaviors. And uh, it's, been, it's been really good. And the other thing I've done is I'm just making way, 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 way more social media content than I used to because I figured out people are home and they're bored. And so I'm doing, you know, at least five and as many as 12 or 13 pieces of video content a week Wow! in releasing it on my different social platforms. And people seem to be really excited about that. So I keep doing it. Yeah. Can, I'm really curious about what you were saying about talking with people. Can you just dive into that and maybe explain a little bit more of that? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you've ever watched like a Facebook live or something, you know how it works. Someone looks in a camera and they talk and then little comments float by. And if they can read fast enough, they respond to them. At these events I'm doing, you can basically um, ask a question as a text block. And then if you tell me you're okay being on camera, when I get to your question, I invite the person on screen, they accept, mm -hmm. and then they appear right next to me. And we can see each other like a FaceTime call. Only everybody at the event can see what's happening. And um, I like to do that because I think every question someone has, your curiosity is almost always echoed by someone else. Someone else has the same question the same dilemma and don't get me wrong it's not like i can answer every question i say on my podcast ask science mike that every sincere question deserves an honest and non-judgmental response my goal is to respond to questions not to answer them mm -hmm. uh but it's been a very good experience people like joining us on these uh events and uh you know they go two or three hours and what i'm finding remarkably is Everybody joins as soon as it starts. People don't fade in and then they stay the whole time. You know, we'll lose one or two people in the whole time and they'll say, got to go dinner with the family. Um, but I've been, I've been amazed um, how even though these are online, how, how much they're similar to the events I do in, per, in person when I travel. Uh, and I just think that, I think that speaks to our collective need and desire to try to figure out some new way of, of having a normal life right now. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think that's, that's something from uh, whether it be with the liturgists or whether it be with your ask science, Mike community, like mm-hmm. you've done an incredible job of just creating a, creating a community where, where people feel safe enough, literally just to share like some stuff that they've may, maybe have never talked with anybody about before. Mm-hmm. And, and what, like, what has helped you, like, what's helped you create that type of space? <sighs> Honest sharing. Uh, having non-judgmentalism be a core value that I don't just talk about, but model and invite people into. Sincere listening. Active listening. Admitting uh, all the things I don't know and all the uncertainties I have. It's, it's a normal habit in the media world to kind of do the best presentation of yourself. And I avoid that at all costs. I try to uh, show the fullness of who I am, good and bad, in my platform so that people realize that I am not any different than they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I speak out loud things in my life that most people are ashamed of or that are taboo. Mm-hmm. And I go first in, in sharing openly. And that seems to inspire trust in the audience. What, what has helped you listen in a, in a non-judgmental way? Oh gosh, I've just suffered a lot in life and I've been rejected a lot and I just don't like to do that to other people. Yeah. Well, that's, that's kind of a good segue into, you know, you've, you've come out with this book called Mm -hmm. you're a miracle and a pain in an ass pain in the ass, which also, which is just an incredible title, by the way, (laughs) the title's gotten good feedback. Yeah. And, and I'm just interested of, you know, at least in, in my own experience of like creating stuff that sometimes there usually tends to be like a story or a series of events that, that leads us to create the thing that we're putting out into the world. And I'm just curious for you, what, what was the story? What was the series of events that led you to realize, Hey, now is the Mm -hmm. time to release this book. Gosh, this has been such a long journey. Uh, I released a book in 2016 called finding God in the waves. Um, which is, is a, a neat book. Um, it's been out four years now. I can't believe it. And it still sells copies every week. Uh, sometimes it sells several hundred copies a month, still four years after release, because it's a book for people in a particular life station called a faith transition. And Finding on the Waves is not the book I wanted to be my first book. But publishers, when I started to approach them, uh, they wanted me to have a book that told the audience who I was before I told them what I wanted to say. And so Finding on the Waves was really like the story of how I came to be me. Uh, but the book I actually wanted to write was a book about growth and change and transformation as a person who had just done that a lot. I wanted to write a, a science-based owner's manual for the human life. And uh, I worked on it a lot. And... Then I shifted gears and worked on Finding God in the Waves and released that. And then almost immediately returned working on this book, which I kind of saw as my opus. 
and um, talked to a publisher about it. It was originally called You Wondrous You. Um, and I was working on it and I thought it was going to be a great book. And it was sort of like, I viewed myself as an expert on living because I'd suffered a lot and I'd grown a lot and I did work that was really substantive and meaningful to me. And I wanted other people to be able to do those things if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things, are we going to say something? Oh no. Uh, yeah, I was. Yeah, And that it. turned out to be totally wrong <laughs> because I'm not an expert in living and my life started to fall apart. Um, and so I started to have panic attacks and I got diagnosed with PTSD and autism and uh, started to get really expensive therapy bills. My daughter was diagnosed with anorexia and uh, I had heart problems and my friend Rachel Held Evans died. And the next thing I knew, my so-called expert life was a total wreck and the book became a survivor's account about how to love yourself um really late in the writing process really late i just took everything i'd written and i started over uh from the perspective of i don't know anything about living well but i think i'm learning to love myself and like that, that's one of the things that I, that I really appreciated. I think one of the big themes that you could just see throughout the book is just that of self-acceptance through mm-hmm. it all. Mm-hmm. Like what are some of the things just along your journey that have, that have helped you get to a place? And I think self-acceptance, it's something that we're going to be like, we're going to be learning to accept ourselves probably for the rest of our life. But what, Absolutely. Are, what are some of the things along the way that have helped you become more self-accepting of yourself? There's a a phrase I've heard used in different faith transitions, faith traditions, and in psychology, and that's the shadow self. It's kind of inner darkness. And I don't like that term because it implies that some parts of us are dark. Parts of us are difficult. But I started to refer to my shadow self as my survivor self or my survival self. Every part of us is carefully selected and curated by life to help us survive, including the things that frustrate us, including the things that make us feel overwhelmed and out of control. All of these things are part of our bodies and our brain's abilities to keep us alive. What does happen is sometimes our survival strategies stop serving us and they cause us more difficulty than benefit. And at those times we do have to find new ways of living and being. And those, those transitions can be incredibly difficult, but I'm learning that all the things that drive me crazy about myself and that frustrate me are also so critical in keeping me alive. And that realization was kind of the cognitive seed that led to um, a deeper appreciation of self and love of self that came through just a lot of really hard therapeutic work and a really uh, difficult period of growth. And you need both. You need the ideas to open your uh, self to new experiences, but then you also have to have a lot of new experiences to actually drive those changes into more of your body and more of your brain. Mm-hmm. So. 
what what helped you take those ideas like from ideas and concepts into like the new experiences trauma therapy um the practice of grounding myself and learning to be aware of my physical sensations in my body which believe it or not most of us just float around and pay no attention to from there learning to accept all of my feelings, including the ones I didn't like, like sadness or anger or grief, learning that those feelings are good and those feelings belong, learning to confront the shame I feel about who I was as a child and about things I've done in the past to survive. Um, it was It's a multi-year journey. The thing about this book is like so many books basically posit that you read the book and you know, you're going to go beginning to the end and you're going to get 15 simple steps to change your life. And that's just not in here. It's just not in this book. This book is an invitation to a continuing and difficult process of getting to know yourself better. And as you get to know yourself better, loving yourself better. And as you love yourself better, loving others better and more fully. And from there becoming a more active participant in creating an equitable and just world. And I believe that all of those things start with self-love and self-acceptance and not in a, a social media selfie kind of way, but in a deep, profound and grounding way. Mm -hmm. Why, why do you think it's so important that we, that we love ourselves well and why, like, why, why do you think it is that, our, our self-love leads us to love other people better. When we don't love ourselves, we become dependent on other people's approval. We become dependent on other people managing our feelings. When we don't love ourselves, we're so afraid that we'll be rejected. We spend an incredible amount of energy trying to manage other people's feelings about us. When we love ourselves, we can take ownership over our own feelings and our own experiences, and we don't need other people to do that work for us. When we love ourselves, we're not so afraid of being rejected because we know who we are, and we don't need the acceptance or approval of others to know who we are, and we'll tend to put energy into those people who can love us as we are, as we love them as they are. When we love ourselves, we're more resilient. We can handle critique and criticism better. When I don't love myself and I'm a white man and someone talks about patriarchy or white supremacy, I become defensive because I so desperately need approval. But when I love myself, I can listen to another person's pain and I can hear another person's experience and I can empathize with them and I can act in ways that help produce their flourishing because I don't feel attacked. I don't feel my ego falling to pieces as whiteness or masculinity are critiqued because I've learned to love myself on a deeper and more profound level than my whiteness or my maleness. Mm. And that's why I think so many significant issues we face in our society and in our culture are from the simple fact that we don't accept ourselves and therefore we spend so much time and energy setting up defensive barriers to protect our inner insecurities. But those insecurities don't have to remain. 
those are scars left from people who have hurt us. But when we address those wounds, those insecurities lessen. And when those insecurities lessen, we find ourselves able to show up with other people in new and profound ways. Hmm. That, for, for the person who's, and I mean, even like loving, even for myself, like loving yourself can sometimes, it can be really scary. And mm-hmm. it can, mm-hmm. it can feel very overwhelming as well. Cause, cause just what you were saying, like, that means that you have to love the parts of yourself that aren't easy to love. Mm-hmm. What, what would you say might be, where might be a place to start? Emotional awareness. So what, one, one thing I learned writing this book is that we all have feelings we don't let ourselves have because we were taught they weren't okay. An easy example is men. Almost all men are told boys don't cry. And if they start to cry, they get rejected or shamed. And so our brains don't like to be rejected or shamed. And so when we start to get sad, our brains go, oh, can't do that. And we learn to either shut it off by separating our sensations from our bodies, or we learn to um, bypass that by moving into shame preemptively. Because if you feel shame, you don't cry. You just feel shame or anxiety. But when you feel shame or anxiety, that feels terrible. So then we tend to have some kind of a coping mechanism to cope with that, what feels bad, like making jokes or compulsive eating or a compulsive internet browsing, whatever it is. There's some pattern of behavior that helps us escape, um, escape that, those, those difficult feelings. We can't love ourselves if we can't accept our feelings. And so the first step, I think, for many, if not most people, is learning to experience a full range of emotions. And when we learn to experience a full range of emotions, it actually changes the way we feel, changes the way we feel about our life, it changes the way we feel about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And as I learn to be sad and I learn to be angry, I stopped feeling ashamed of those feelings and it became easier to accept me in all the ways that I am and all the ways that I have been. Yeah. And, and I know that like, that's, that's part of my story too, of getting more comfortable with um, even identifying emotions. Cause for the longest time I had trouble identifying the emotions. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of like an emotion wheel or a feelings? Wheel oh yeah. Absolutely. Before? <laughs> absolutely. Yes. That has been, I think one of my favorite discoveries in like the last couple of years. And it's been so helpful to me. Hmm. Yeah. They are because we literally don't know our own feelings. We literally don't understand which, like, how, how are we trained to not understand something that came with our bodies, but it is what happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier that, that this book, it really isn't a how-to manual. What, what made you, or it's not like a step-by-step guide you know the 15 steps to having a greater life as you mentioned mm-hmm. what what made you want to write it that way because i didn't want to erase the complexity of people i just noticed that self-help books almost never drive lasting change in people there'll be some tiny number of people who are transformed by a book and the other people read it and like well that was interesting and their lives don't change in any way. And I think that's because we oversimplify how difficult it is for a human person to change. 
And so I thought perhaps by being more honest about the depth and breadth of the journey, uh, people who are ready because they need to be, because where they are today is too hard to stay, to begin to grow and to change, to invite them to understand that the, I can help them begin that journey, but I can't take them through it. I can't tell them what it's going to look like for them because their journey is going to be completely different than mine. And uh, that tends to be how I approach all of my work. Uh, I try to, um, I, I've always tried to equip people to learn for themselves as opposed to just accept what I share. And this book is just uh, kind of the, the ultimate example of that so far in my career. Man, that's really, that's really intriguing. What, like, I'm just interested. Can you say more about teaching people to learn from their, learn for themselves? Yeah, well, here's the problem. We're uh, social primates and we believe things that we hear more than once from people. And we believe things more uh, from people that we trust. And a lot of people trust me. Um, and so as much as possible, I try to encourage them not to, at least not trust you can trust that my feelings are genuine, but please second guess everything I tell you informationally. And here are some tools that you can use to fact check me. So, um, you know, if you look at my book, uh, there's a huge section in the back, which is called notes. I just have so many references so people can go double check me. And then I also always add an index to my book. Uh, because if they're like, gosh, where was that idea in the book? People can look it up. And then they have a term, you know, if they were wondering about um, the global neuronal workspace model, they can look that up in my index and realize, gosh, that might be a good term to look up in an encyclopedia or in a Google search or in academic papers or on Amazon to dig deeper into that idea beyond where I took them. Um, and to see if my take on it was good or not, right? Let people decide for themselves. Gosh, Science Mike really missed the, missed the mark on this one. And um, I think a big threat to our society right now is the degree to which we accept information without discerning the quality of that information. It's true of all people increasingly. And what I love about science is the way that it teaches us to evaluate the claims that get put in front of us. And I want to encourage people to do that with all claims, including my own. Mm -hmm. what, what's maybe a belief that you entered the book writing process with that got changed by the time that the book was completed? Thoughts are in charge of feelings. That's when I started... It was a book about how your thoughts can guide your feelings wherever you want your feelings to go. And that, that was very wrong. That, that was, in fact, the central premise of the book. <laughs> and that just, we just crunched that up, threw it away. Uh, so, so, talk, so say more about that. Yeah. Um, I've always been able to control my feelings using my thoughts uh, because I learned something called cognitive behavioral therapy when I was in high school and as a technique, and it's a perfectly valid form of therapy. Uh, but I would use that to like escape any negative feeling, any, well, any difficult feeling. I'm, I'm trying to stop using the word negative in relation to feelings. 
any difficult feeling. And uh, it can work for a while. But what you're doing is just stacking up a bunch of latent emotional energy in the circuits of your brain. They're going to get out at some point. Um, and I realized the thinking part of my brain, the cognitive part of my brain, could fit in a shot glass. It's tiny. The feeling part of my brain is like the size of a brick. And then my whole body's involved in feeling. So how did I think like a quarter sized patch of tissue in my body had dominion over everything else? It's just not true. And because our feelings have far more power in each and every moment than I ever realized, it meant learning to connect with your feelings and have a mindful and significant relationship with them is essential for well living because otherwise you're just denying most of your lived experience and uh, kind of doing an emotional deficit spending sooner or later, the bill is going to come due. And so this book became the opposite of its original premise and is actually now about how wise and powerful our feelings are and how we can best use that wisdom uh, to our advantage as we try to live a life of meaning and fulfillment. Mm-hmm. How, how can we use our feelings and not, and not deny our feelings while at the same time not being like, I'm trying to think of what the right word was, but being, being controlled by our feelings, if that, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. If I get angry and I punch someone in the nose, I've been controlled by my feelings in a, in a, in a, in a very unideal way, in a way I would dare call maladaptive. If I get sad and I eat two gallons of ice cream every day because I'm sad, that's maladaptive. That over time, that strategy is going to cause more problems than it solves. So in those cases, I'm controlled by by my feelings. But if I get angry, and I know I'm angry, and I say to someone who is being unkind to me, what you are saying makes me angry, and I will not let someone talk to me that way. Well, now my anger has just served me in an incredible way by helping me set a boundary in a relationship. If I get sad, and my sadness leads me to cry, and I realize I want to eat a tub of ice cream, but I sit down and I let my sadness wash over my body and I cry and I follow it all the way to the end, sadness will almost always tell us why it came if we don't try to end it with uh, some coping mechanism. And I often I'll realize I'm sad because I'm lonely. So maybe, maybe I don't want an Oreo cookie. Maybe I want a hug from my wife. And in that case, my sadness has really served me. It's taught me what isn't working for me in my environment. Um, And my poor sadness, it's an ancient animal impulse. Feelings appeared long before thoughts. So sadness doesn't know uh, about agriculture or manufactured processed foods. Sadness only knows something should be different. But if I'm thoughtful, and I give my feelings the space to guide me, but then sit and discern 
where the feeling is coming from, I can make meaningful changes to my life instead of reacting to my feelings in thoughtless ways. Switching gears a little bit, I want to ask you, uh, and I think you mentioned this earlier, what, what has helped you become so comfortable with not having to have the answer to everything? Survival. <laughs> I've been wrong so much. I've just, I am like the most wrong person I've ever met. And if I just keep trying to think I'm right all the time, I, it's just going to be harder in the long run. So why not admit ahead of time, I am wrong about some things right now. I just don't know which things. And I'm just going to try to figure that out as best as I can. And I've found that to be so liberating. Just so liberating. I watch it right now in a pandemic. Everybody's trying to get a, what's going to happen next. Friends, nobody knows what's going to happen next. Nobody has a clue. And it's easier when we don't pretend that we can master something like a pandemic through certainty. It's much easier for me to go, well, scientists are working hard. The best thing I can do right now is wait. Yeah. Uh, I'm just curious, what, uh, what problems or challenges or things are you thinking about right now? And it could be stuff that's happening in the world. It could be stuff that's happening, uh, personally, just whatever. I'm, I'm just always curious and just wonder like what people are thinking about. When science works, people dismiss science. That's a huge problem. Mm. Experts told us we have a problem with our computer systems. They don't know how to count to 2000 on dates. It's called Y2K. If we don't fix this problem, there's going to be a huge disruption. So governments and companies spent incredible money to fix the bugs. And then the year 2000 happened and everything was fine. And people went, well, that was a big panic over nothing right? They were wrong. There would have been a calamity if we hadn't done something. Here we are in a pandemic. Experts and epidemiologists tell us if we don't do major physical distancing now, millions of people are going to die. And then we do major physical distancing. And still 60,000 people die, but people go, it wasn't as bad as they said. Let's open everything back up. When the reason 2 million people didn't die is because we did what the expert said. And in fact, guess what? If we would have done what the expert said immediately, it might've been 5,000 people died. So I'm very worried right now as a science educator, how do we communicate complexity to a public who is stressed and overwhelmed and pulled side to side in media warfare, pushing oversimplified narratives so they can sell ad dollars and gain political power. It is an incredible challenge. But I think what we're about to do in this country uh, is we've done the physical distancing that had a huge economic cost. And instead of addressing that economic cost in ways we should through direct stimulus spending, 
We're instead going to try to reopen the economy and we're going to have a second wave of COVID-19 that was bigger than the first one, which means we'll have the economic damage of physical distancing. We'll have the deaths that will come as if we'd done nothing. And then we'll have the economic damage from people who are afraid to come out of their house for three years. And this all scientists already know it all in advance. We already, the models already tell us how it's going to play out and trying to convince the public and especially political leaders, the reality of a virus who cares nothing about media spin and cares nothing about polling and cares nothing about politicians reputations or the stock market all it does is grab onto cells steal their reproductive machinery and make copies of itself if we don't figure out a way to crack the nut of public messaging fast we are going to face a bigger calamity in june august september october november than we've faced already we could still see millions of people die we could still see an economic contraction that makes the Great Depression look like a walk in the park. And it is completely avoidable if people will listen to scientists and experts. Why do you think that there's such like a strong resistance to paying attention to science? Science is complex and subtle and nuanced. Honest scientists right now say, we don't know more than we know about COVID-19. And so we're recommending precautions based on a range of outcomes with a bunch of variables we don't have plugged in yet and will not have plugged in for some time. And for social primates like us, when we hear a message like that, we go, that person doesn't know what they're talking about. They just admitted they don't have all the answers. Meanwhile, a blowhard who knows nothing will say, I know exactly how this works. This is a conspiracy to take down the economy or for billionaires to get more money or name your thing, whatever. A person with no expertise, a person with no information says something confidently. And unfortunately, the way our brains are wired, we trust that second answer more than the first every time. Now you can train people to be better about that, but it requires, it just, it literally requires more neurological resources. You have to push against your instincts. You have to train yourself to be skeptical. Um, and that's the pattern. Science is complex and science is slow. We don't know how contagious COVID-19 is still. We don't know how many total cases of COVID-19 there are still. We don't know how many people are asymptomatic versus symptomatic, how many people have mild versus severe case presentations. We don't know the total number of deaths. We don't know the actual fatality rate. All the fundamental values for this virus are currently unknown. And the things that we would need to know, to, we need to get the information to make good policy responses and we're not doing those things because it requires messaging to people. We still don't know what's going on. We don't know how long you have to keep staying home. And the public doesn't like messages like that. People don't like bad news. They want good news. So someone will lie and offer good news. People will listen and they'll get burned by that multiple times and still go for it because it's a coping response to trauma. 
you you said something about training ourselves to become more skeptical and preparing mm-hmm. ourselves for that. What for the person who's listening, even for myself, I'm just wondering, like, what do you think? Like, what does that look like? It's just an educational process. Let's, there's a reason I'm a science educator. There's a reason I'm a science educator who started exclusively talking to religious people. Like now I, ta- I have a much more broad audience. But when I started, I basically only talked to religious people. We have to learn how science works. The more people understand the fundamentals of the scientific method and the process of science, we've seen this in research, the more media literate they become the more uh, less prone to falling into confirmation bias they are. Uh, Science is a method for double-checking our instincts, giving us something else to rely on besides our gut. And don't hear me wrong, our intuition is wonderful. I don't think intuition is bad. I just think intuition is a terrible way to create public health policy in a pandemic, right? In that case, we need science. And for the public to accept science, they need to know more about it. And there is, I'm sorry, a literal war on science. Um, And it's not just like one religious group. It's not just one political party. People want science when science is convenient to them. Science has a stubborn capacity to say what it says, regardless of what you want it to say. And because of that, people, uh, they don't want to go all in on the scientific method. Uh, but at times like this, these, it's critical that we do, you know, when we talk about climate, it needs to be a science centered conversation, not a political or partisan conversation, not a worldview conversation. It needs to be a science conversation. And that requires people being educated and scientifically literate. Yeah. And, and your podcast would be ask science. Mike would be a great place to, to learn things. And just, just as you were saying uh, earlier, like, I absolutely love your attitude of humility of like, and if you don't believe me, just check me. Check, it please. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing makes me happier yeah. than when someone tweets me and is like, hey, I did some research and I think you misstated this. And I'm like, yes. And they send me like three different papers and I'm like, here we go. <laughs> I- I'm good at my job. Yeah. Um, what is, uh, it could be a book or a podcast or or literally um, any type of resource, but what, what's a resource that, that you've read or listened to recently and maybe the last year or so that has like dramatically influenced you so much? Andre Henry's work called Hope and Hard Pills mm. has been some of the most illuminating resources anywhere. Um, I read all his emails. I, I listen to all his social posts and all his podcasts. Hope and Hard Pills is incredible. I was going to say, and for people who may not be familiar with Andre, can you just talk a little bit more about kind of what, what he does and the impact that it's had on you? Andre is um, a racial justice advocate of uh, great renown, a uh, social transformation expert, and a, 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 he's an organi- social organizer. Um, and he has a research-based approach to uh, driving social change. And, you know, we get frustrated about how the world is and we feel like things are hopeless. And what encourages me about people like Andre is Andre's not hopeless. Andre is making a plan and inviting people to participate in it. And uh, he's brilliant. Awesome. Uh, one, one final question I want to ask you, 
is if you could pass on three lessons that you've learned in your life to everybody, what would they be? I am good and worthy of love. And so is everyone else. The easy answer is rarely the right one. And the greatest of these is love. Hmm. Uh, can you can you talk a little bit more about the the easy answer is rarely the right answer? Yeah, our brains like easy solutions. So when I'm faced with a problem, I usually want the easy one. Uh, I feel sad. Repressing my feelings makes me feel better. Mm. That's the easy way. It's not, it's not the way that's ultimately going to work best towards my goals and my interests. Um, yeah, we want, we want simple, simple solutions to problems and often, uh, that just leads us to more suffering. Well, Mike, before I let you go, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you wouldn't want to talk about? No, I'm just so grateful <laughs> to have been able to speak with you, Kayla. Yeah, it, it's great talking with you, Mike. It's been a very enjoyable time. If people want to get your book, You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass, and continue to learn from you and follow you, where's the best places for them to go to do those things? Anywhere books, ebooks, or audiobooks are sold, we'll have it. Uh, if you need a list of those, you can go to asksciencemike.com slash new book. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for spending some time with me. And uh, just thanks for your, your honesty and just your openness and, and your authenticity. And uh, I think I'm speaking for many people on that. So just thanks for all that you're doing. Mm, thank you, Caleb. It's so good to speak with you today. Well, Mike, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. It's great to talk with you. Thanks for spending some time with us today as well. Now, the best way to make sure that you don't miss our next episode is by subscribing to the podcast on whatever podcast player you use, whether that's Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Overcast, or if you're on Spotify, hit the follow button and you'll never miss an episode as well. Also wanted to remind you that the music that you're listening to is brought to you by my good friend, Sam Massey, and hit him up if you have any audio or video needs that you're interested or that you may want to look into. Mike, thanks again for being on the podcast today. And thanks so much for you, the listener, for just listening and for being a part of uh, the community that that we're trying to build. Anyway, my name is Caleb Mason, and until next time, keep learning and keep growing.